on this morning. If you're here and you forgot your Bible, or if you don't have a Bible, uh, we would love to supply you one. And by supply, I mean give to you one for your own keeping. So if you don't have a Bible at home, but you would like a copy of God's Word, we exist to spread God's Word. And so just raise your hand, and one of the brothers and sisters will bring you uh, a copy of the Scriptures, and uh, you just keep that if you don't have one. Uh, a couple hands over here, brother. You just keep that if you don't have one. Um, and we would love for you to, to have that. And you may be helped to follow along if you do have a copy of the Bible. Um, we are in Luke's Gospel in chapter 8. If you're new to the Bible, when you hear me say the chapter number, chapter 8, that's the big number on the page. When you hear me say the verse number, verse 1, that's the small number, right? So Luke chapter 8, verse 1. And it's our custom here to take a portion of the Bible, like Luke chapter 8, and to preach through the whole of that portion, trying to give the meaning of that text and apply it to our lives. And so you'll be helpful to learn what the Bible teaches, be helped to learn what the Bible teaches, if you would follow along with us in the Scripture. i got a hand up front here, brother. You follow along with us in the Scripture as we read God's Word. Up here, brother. Everybody have a Bible that wishes one? I wonder if you've noticed what I've noticed. That over the last 10 years, 15 maybe, pastors have changed the way they refer to themselves. It used to be enough just to be known as pastor so-and-so or reverend so-and-so. But now, that seems to be kind of unpopular, or at least not cool. So now pastors are motivational speakers and life coaches. Many pastors make a big deal of the fact that they are they're authors, they've written books, or um, they speak at various places. And so long before you get to the title reverend or pastor or bishop, you get all these other accolades, all these other descriptions, many of which seem to bear very little relationship to the ministry of the word. I wonder if you've noticed over those last 10 or 15 years or so, there's also something that happens on the opposite side. There are folks who are not only not ashamed to be called pastor, but they actually want bigger titles. Apostle, right? I'm apostle so-and-so. What's happening in the minds of church leaders when they want to rest their identity on these titles? Don't get me wrong, titles have their place. It's appropriate to honor people for the roles they play, and titles describe those roles very often. But this sort of grasping for a different way to be described, a different way to be understood, how are we to understand that? And maybe more to the point, how does it compare to the way Jesus describes himself? How does it compare to what Jesus makes primary in his own ministry. When we come to Luke chapter 8, we're going to see something about the Lord Jesus in the series that we've called Getting to Know Jesus. And that's precisely what we're praying the Lord will enable us to do, to, to better know the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to see him in his character, to, to know something about the way he thinks and, and what moves his heart, so that knowing him better, we might treasure him more deeply. And here's the thing we learn about Jesus in Luke 8. The entirety of his ministry is centered upon the word of God. In fact, in Luke chapter 8, he's going to tell a parable, a story, in which a man sows seed. And sowing of that seed is really a symbol for the preaching of God's word. And it's in that parable that Jesus reveals to us that he's the sower, the sower of the word of God. And when we look at Luke chapter 8, the main point from this text is actually best summarized by Scripture itself. Romans 10, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. That's the main gist in picture, in history, in anecdote of Luke chapter 8. As we go through this text, I want us to hang our thoughts on two points further. Number one, we should be careful to hear God's Word. And number two, we should be sure to believe God's word. Let's be careful to hear God's word. Let's be sure to believe God's word because faith comes by hearing and hearing 
by the word of God. If you have your Bibles, look with me in Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it, and some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep and a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, master, master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to, de- to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. And the herdsmen saw what had happened They fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. 
And they came to Jesus and found a man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched a friend of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. And Jesus said, Someone touch me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. And falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she's not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned. And she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Amen. The text this morning really divides into a, a couple of scenes. Right there in chapter 8, verse 1, we see Jesus going through the countryside, teaching people uh, all throughout the region. And that's where he teaches them these three parables that go down to verse 21. Then in verse 22, they decide to take a boat ride across the Sea of Galilee to cross to the other side of the sea where Jesus would continue to preach over there. And that's where you see these three miracles, the calming of a storm, the healing of the demon-possessed man, actually four miracles, the healing of the woman, and the raising of the little girl from the dead. But running through all of these scenes, whether in Jesus' teaching or whether in the action section of the chapter, is this emphasis on the word of God. And running through the chapter are all these various ways in which we see people responding to the word of God. Our first point this morning is be careful how you hear God's word. And what I want to do is give you seven statements under this heading. Seven quick things from this chapter about the nature of God's word and why we need to be careful about how we hear it. You ready? Number one. First of all, those who hear God's word should spread the word of God. So we want to be careful, if we're already Christians, as believers, we want to be careful about how we hear God's word because part of what Christ requires of us is the further spreading of that word. That's what we see in verses uh, 1 to 3 of chapter 8. You see, again, he's going through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. He's preaching the gospel in all these little towns and hamlets. But he wasn't alone. Did you see that there in verse 2? There were 12. The 12 were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. The twelve refers to the the twelve men, the apostles, the the sort of chief disciples of the Lord who would have authority over the church and would teach the church after the Lord's earthly mission. But then there are some women traveling with our Lord. That's really very surprising. 
is unlike anything that would have happened with an ancient rabbi in Jesus' day. It would not have been placed for women in the, in the company of a rabbi. And yet Jesus here has these women traveling with him. And not only that, verse 3, they were supporters of his ministry. You see what it says there? They provided for them or provided for him out of their means. If Luke were alive today, he'd use the hashtag, say her name. Right? Notice, he names them in particular. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna. We don't know much about Susanna apart from this verse. Joanna is apparently a woman of some status since her husband Chuzza manages the household of Herod. And Mary Magdalene was at some point possessed by seven demons until Jesus delivered her. These are unnamed women, unknown women, women with a broken past, and women with a little status. All kinds of women serve the Lord in his ministry. How many of you know the Christian church would have, would have crumbled from the days of Jesus had it not been for women? And we certainly would have closed a whole lot of doors, church doors, around this country and around the world were it not for the faithful witness and gospel partnership of Christian women. And you see them here being included in the ministry of the Lord and Luke here affirming them by, by naming them and making reference to them. Let it be the case that in ARC, our sisters feel every encouragement from the leadership and from the church as a whole to serve in every way that the Bible permits. And in every way that women are called to serve and gifted to serve, we want to see them flourish and flower in accord with the word of God so that the word of God might be spread so that from city to city and town to town, in our day, the gospel of the kingdom of God might make its rounds, and people might hear it. In fact, that partnership is why ARC exists. In a sense, this is why every local church exists. Every local church is, in one sense, a kind of partnership between those who preach and those who hear the preaching and support the preaching. It's a kind of partnership uh, in the spreading of the gospel where some go and proclaim and some give that it might be proclaimed. And there's a sense in which both of those things fall on all of us. All of us have some responsibility for going and proclaiming the gospel of our Lord. And some of us have some responsibility for giving that the proclamation might go forward. And some do more or less of the other, but all of us are in this partnership. This, is, this has been so from the very ministry of Jesus himself. That there's this co-op created, this team, this partnership all with the aim of spreading the gospel, all done by those who have heard and believe the gospel. So churches don't look for government support. Churches don't write a lot of grant applications to private foundations. God has always intended that the business of the family be carried out by the family, that the spread of the word of God is done by those who believe the word of God. And that's part of how we ensure its integrity. So number one, those who hear the word should spread the word. Number two, now, God calls everyone to hear the word. That's what we see in the parable in verses four to eight. You've heard this story before about these four types of soil, the, the path, the rock, the thorns, and the good soil. But notice the punchline in verse eight. Jesus said these things and he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And you often hear Jesus say that, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And you ask yourself the question, who doesn't have ears to hear? Well, nearly everyone does. But the saying suggests that you can have ears and yet not be hearing. That was my mom's frequent complaint about my dad. She so said, Harvey, hear what he want to hear. <laughs> and it was true, he was selective in his hearing. Mom would say, Harvey, you take the trash out. And he'd just keep reading the paper or doing what he was doing. And she'd say, Harvey, you hear me? He'd go, huh? <laughs> but if she said, Harvey, it's time to eat dinner. He'd fold up his paper, he'd get up, he'd go. <laughs> we sometimes hear what we want to hear, don't we? And having ears, we don't always hear. And that's true not just of wives and husbands or not just true of employees and employers, but that's true of people and God. 
So Jesus gives this very apt exhortation. If you have ears, make sure that you hear what God is saying. And that's the thing about the word of God. You must work to hear it. There's some effort that's required. There's some energy that the hearer has to put into it. Now, some of us get really accustomed to going to churches where the preacher entertains us and the listening is easy. It's easy to listen to entertainment. That's why we call it entertainment. That's, that's why we enjoy it. But now, I'm going to tell you, beloved, we, we need to do better than that. We, if we would have God's word have its effect in our lives, there's something that must happen. The preacher, yes, must study to be plain and engaging, but the people better come awake Amen. and ready to hear. This is not just a matter of sound waves vibrating your eardrums. It's a matter of actually understanding and holding on to and applying what thus saith the Lord. And this is important because of number three. This is important because of number three. Hearing the word of God is actually spiritual warfare. Hearing the word of God is spiritual warfare. So in verses 9 to 15, Jesus goes on to explain them the meaning of the parable. The disciples come to him in verse 9. They want to know, what, what exactly did you mean there? See, hearing, they didn't hear, right? And they say, what do you, what do you mean there? And he goes on to tell them what the, the path and the birds, the rocks and the withering away, the thorns that choke the seed, the, the good soil and the crop. He explains the meaning. Now, parables are symbolic stories, but the point of the parable isn't to press all the details of the parable into some literal meaning. The way you read parables is you sort of read the story in order to get this one punchline, this one sort of loaded meaning from the text. And so Jesus begins to tell them about the symbols, right? And here's what I want to suggest to you, that, that what he's telling us about hearing in this symbolic story is that we are engaged in a spiritual conflict when it comes to hearing. So if you look at verses 12 to 14, I think you get what could be allusions to the three enemies of the Christian the world, the flesh, and the devil. So notice there in verse 12, the attack of the devil. He's mentioned by name, which lets us know that demons are real. The devil looks to snatch the seed before it can take root, like birds devouring seed before the plant grows. And why? Did you see at the end of verse 12? Notice there. So that they may not believe and be saved. The only person interested and you and I not being saved from the judgment of God to come is Satan. And he is actively working to eliminate the presence of the word of God in the lives of people precisely so they may not be saved. Notice where he snatches it from. From the heart. The battleground of this warfare is waged on a human and Jesus says, be careful how you hear, because there's an enemy, a devourer, who is looking to snatch the seed from your heart so that you would not be saved or rescued from the judgment of God against sin. The very word itself brings to you a message about how you may escape that judgment, that God has sent his son into the world to be crucified for our sins, and he sent his son into the world to live a perfectly righteous life in our place. And the one and only son of God, in an act of love, gives himself as a ransom for our sin when he dies upon the cross. And what we are saved from, Jesus is punished with. The wrath of God is poured out upon Christ so that we may not suffer it. That's the word of the kingdom. That's the gospel. That's the main story of this entire book. And it's spread in the preaching and the teaching and the conversation around God's word. And Satan, like a bird from the air, snatches up the gospel seed from the heart. So guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Be careful how you hear, because there's an adversary roaming, seeking whom he may devour. And not only that, but notice our flesh gets involved too. There's the apostasy of the flesh in, in verse 13. Some people hear and they're happy for a little while. You ever seen people like this? But then some testing comes, some trial comes. And in that testing and they try, in those trials, they say, they don't take all that, and they turn away. This is what the Bible calls apostates. 
those who fall away from the faith and fall away from Christ and so are lost. And not only is there the the persecution and the testing of the flesh, but there's also the allure, the enticement of the world. In verse 14, you see some begin, but notice they don't go on because the seed is choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. My friend, we are even right now engaged in a warfare. We are right now warring against distraction from the world and the flesh. We are right now trying not to think about what work holds tomorrow or what we're going to eat for lunch or how warm it is in the room. Even trials that small would rob us of the word of God. And right now we are going to go out from this place into the workplace, into the world, maybe even into the home, and we're going to face some persecution, some challenge, some reviling, some slander, all for the name of Christ. And we will be making decisions all along the way as to whether or not we will hold on to the word of God or whether or not we will fall away. And even Satan and his minions look to work to make sure, to conspire, that we don't hear God's word. Verse 15 gives us the antidote. Verse 15 tells us the strategy for how we win this warfare when it comes to hearing the word of God. Look there with me. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. That's how we win the war. We hear the word of God, and we hold it fast. We hold it tightly. We hold it, we hold it securely. We don't, we don't hold it loosely. We don't, we don't hold it glibly, but we, we hold on to it for life, right? Like, like a soldier in a warfare holds his rifle and is taught never to lose his rifle. It's the worst thing a soldier can do. And so we now, armed with the word of God in this warfare, we, we are taught, we're being told to hold fast to the word of God and never surrender our weapon to hold it with a good heart. Did you see that? With an honest heart. In other words, when the word of God comes to us, we're not looking for ways to get out of it. I, I, I love that, um, that little anecdote of uh, W.C. Fields who was reading the Bible on his deathbed and somebody asked him, why are you reading the Bible? He says, hmm, looking for loopholes. <laughs> I know loopholes, beloved. All the fine print matters. Every jot and tittle of God's word will stand and not one punctuation mark will pass away. And all of God's word is necessary for our instruction and our edification and our fighting in this warfare. And so we are to receive it, not looking for ways out of it, not looking for loopholes. We're to receive it, not with a critical heart, not with a judgmental heart, as if our ways are higher than God's ways and our thoughts are higher than God's thoughts. We are to humble ourselves beneath the word of God and receive it for what it really is, the word of God, the very words that God has spoken and set in print for our salvation and our edification. It's in that honest, good heart. Did you notice there the rest of verse 15? That fruit is produced with patience. I love that there's so much grace in that last phrase. Because if it were a matter of hearing God's word and understanding it all at once, who would succeed? Not one of us, right? But here, just the insertion of that word, patience. There's a bearing of fruit with patience. We don't, we don't hear the word of God and respond to the gospel, and tomorrow all of our life is fixed. That's not true of anybody. Somebody tells you that, they do not believe the gospel. They are not representing the gospel. No, we hear the word of God, and God, by his grace, gives us life if we believe. And then he begins the slow work of forming that clay into his image, of pruning off things of clipping things, maybe even letting some things grow for a season only to clip it later. It's a slow, patient fruit bearing that we're called to that is the evidence of God's word taking root in a good heart. That's how we win the warfare, is we hold fast to God's word and we're patient with ourselves as we apply God's word and we let the spirit do the work of readying us for that final victory. We want to be careful how we hear the word. 
Why? Because hearing the word is spiritual warfare. Let's consider a fourth thing. The more we hear the word, the more we receive from it. The more we hear the word, the more we receive from it. That's the point of the second parable in verses 16 to 18. Here the word of God is compared to a light or a candle. And we're told no one puts a lamp under a jar or under their bed. In other words, we don't hide light. We let light what? Shine. So verse 16, we put it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Now verse 17 tells us why we want to do that with the word. The word reveals everything. Notice, for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be made known and come to light. See, we can't hide things from God. God is light. And his very presence reveals and shines light upon the world. In him is no darkness at all. And he sends his word into the light, into the world to expose the darkness. So keep your finger there in Luke's gospel. And turn with me to John's gospel. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, the next book of the Bible is John, John's gospel. And look at how Jesus talks about this in John chapter 3, verses 19 to 21. See what the Lord says there. And this is the judgment. That light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. I don't know why I'm quoting my mama so much this morning, but my mama would say it all comes out in the wash. Jesus says here, it all comes out in the light of God's word. There's no hiding from the light of God's word. Even when we prefer darkness rather than the light, we we may run to the darkness, but the word will chase us and the darkness. And here's the thing. It is our natural, sinful, fallen instinct to hide from the face of God because of the shame and the guilt of our sin. But here now, what God is telling us is that if we not hide from his face and his word, but come beneath the light of his word, We'll find ourselves not crushed, but we'll find ourselves saved, and we'll find that he gives us even more than we can imagine in his word. So look back at Luke chapter 8, verse 18. Jesus says, take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. I was so challenged by these three verses in my own soul this week. It's just a, a, a powerful, a striking reminder to me that we don't live on yesterday's grace and that we don't really run very long on yesterday's quiet time and that the gas of our lives is, is deplete, depleted pretty quickly if we're living on just last week's sermon. No, we, we actually need to be filling the tank every day, and drinking from God's Word every day in small doses and big doses with other people and alone. We are meant to feed upon the Word of God. It is our life. And and the Lord Lord chastened me, quickened me. He said, you know, I, I think maybe, brother, you think there's a neutral here. But really, you're either going forward or you're going backwards. You see that in verse 18? It says those who basically receive the word, more will be given to them. That's that's going forward. But look at the second half. And the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has, will be taken away. Here's the thing. You try to live on yesterday's quiet time or last week's sermon, here's what you'll find. You'll find diminishing remembrance of it. Because Christians leak. What we need to do is just keep pouring in the word of God to keep the tank freshly filled. And the more we receive God's word, the more we receive from God's word. The more we develop an appetite for it, the the more hungry and the more voracious becomes our eating of it. And so the more we give ourselves, the more we receive them. But listen, the more you withhold from yourself, the more it's taken away. And isn't this a perfect description of how we look up sometimes and find ourselves spiritually dry? We didn't set out for a desert place. 
But we woke up one morning a little bit late, running behind for work, and so we skipped quiet time. And we were still smelling the fumes of yesterday's gas, so we didn't feel the effect of that morning having skipped quiet time. We still had a pretty good day. The next morning you thought, well, it went well yesterday. Let me just sleep in a little bit. And then you get up and you feel a little bit guilty and you read your daily bread or something. You get a little snippet in and, and you keep running, right? No, no shade on daily bread. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. You know, you get that little snippet in and you try to keep running. The fourth day you get up and you have your quiet time, but it's a little less rewarding than it was just four days ago. And now all of a sudden it feels a little hard to you. And you don't feel quite able to pray or to read the word. And so you miss the next day, and then you fight back into a subsequent day, but but you miss the next day. And all the while, what you feel is this kind of losing, sometimes very subtly, until you look up, and it's been two weeks, and you've not met with the Lord. And then you kind of wonder, how do I get it back? Well, the promise of the first half is that if you get some, he will give you more. So you just start where you are and you drink again from God's word and the dry places are watered. And the more they're watered, the more you flower. And the more you flower, the more you water. This we need to keep in mind when it comes to hearing God's word. And what's the result? Let me give you the fifth thing. The result of hearing God's word is that the word of God will change your loyalties. That's what we see in verses 19 to 21. The Lord is uh, sitting there. He's been teaching the parables to the people. Verse 19, his mother and his brothers came to him. They couldn't reach him because of the crowd. And verse 20, someone comes to Jesus and says, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. Now, at this point, I'm guessing everybody in the room is like, go outside and see what your mama want, right? And you're hoping she didn't show up with rollers in her head, you know, Notice Jesus' response, verse 21, right? He answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who what? Hear the word of God and do it. What a startling statement. This statement right here has confounded people for a long time. They wonder, is Jesus honoring his mother and his brothers? I mean, that's the first commandment with promise, right? Honor thy father and thy mother that it may be, you know, may go well with you and you may have long life. And they wonder, is Jesus here flirting with the commandment? Did he break the commandment? His mother, his mother called him out to, to come see what she wanted. And here he seems to rebuke them. He seems to distance himself from them. But notice what he says in verse 21. And his mothers and his brothers are those who hear the word of God and obey it. The active obedience of the Christian to the Word of God actually creates in the Christian a higher loyalty than just earthly relationships. It's not that he's diminishing the relationship with mother and son or father and daughter. He's not diminishing parenting at all. After After all, it's he who gave the command that we should honor mother and father. No, rather, he's illustrating the fact that there is another father, a heavenly father, to whom we owe a greater loyalty, for he is both our creator and our redeemer. He owns us twice, once by the creation of us from the mud, but also by the redemption of us through the blood. And it's to him that we owe the highest loyalty. And the way we express that loyalty, Jesus will say it a different way in John 14, that if you love me, keep my commandments. The way we express that loyalty is through obedience to his word. And that very active obedience to his word brings us into a different family a spiritual family. And we find our relationships reordered and transformed. That's the power of God's Word. I remember feeling this for the first time and not knowing what to do with it. Chris and I were living in North Carolina at the time, and the girls were young. They were like three and two, two and one. And, uh, you know, when, you, when you're new parents and you got little kids, you know, the parents are always on you, like, come home, come home, Right? They don't want to see you. <laughs> they want the baby, right? 
Like, bring the baby. So Christmas time was coming, and both our, our parents were saying, you coming home for Christmas? You coming home for Christmas? And a uh, little fear of man, we couldn't tell them no. We were trying to, trying to say no in so many ways, but uh, we couldn't quite do it. And, and so, you know, against a lot of conversation about being home with our church family and establishing our own traditions, we went home to visit our parents for Christmas. And we knew that they wouldn't do Christmas the way we had come to learn to do Christmas in terms of focusing on the birth of Christ. Hey, do Christmas the way we were growing up. We were focusing on the tree and the gifts and maybe family dinner. And so we, we sat through that Christmas, and Christmas came, and the uncles came to my house. And I remember once, Phil uh, was sitting on my lap, and my uncle came in, and he said, hey, baby, he said, what, what Santa Claus bring you for Christmas? And she half looked up at him like that. <laughs> she still has that look. <laughs> half looked at him like that. Like, she says, um, we don't celebrate Santa Claus. And he was taken aback. He said, uh, he looked at me like, what, what do you celebrate? So he said, Jesus, birth. He said, oh, yeah, that's right. That's what Christmas is about, babe. He leaves. A couple minutes later, she's sitting on my lap. She kind of looks up at me, and she says, Dad, when are we going to celebrate Christmas? Now, it was into the evening of Christmas Day. And she hadn't felt like she'd celebrated Christmas. We had some conversations with the family. I remember during that visit, my mom at one point saying, you act like you would rather be with your friends back at the church than here with your family. And I was stuck because I realized I did. Not that I didn't love my family. I do. But by sitting under the word of God together and learning to obey the word of God together, God had graciously given me a new family, a bigger family who had everything in common in Christ. And that's what we're to be, ARC, as a, as a local church. We're to be this family forged by the Word of God and obedience to the Word of God and, and forged in such a deep bond and affection for God our Father that not in any hatred toward our er earthly parents, we find our loyalties transformed. And we find we have more in common with those who share those loyalties through the Word to God than we do with those who just share our bloodline. The Word has this marvelously transforming effect. And I hope that we hear this as good news, especially those of us who grew up without a father. My dad left when I was 13. Some of us have never known our dad. Or those of us who've grown up in particularly troubled homes. Mom and dad are there, but they're always fighting, right? Or, or you, you've mourned the loss of a parent. There's a lot of brokenness that happens in our family, and the hope of this text is if we believe the gospel and obey the word, God will give us a new family. He will adopt us as his own children, and we will receive brothers and sisters a hundred times, and fathers and mothers a hundred times, our earthly fathers and siblings. That happens by the word. Number five, moving more quickly. Or number six, that was number five, see? Moving slowly again. Number six, <laughs> the Word of God calms our fears. The Word of God calms our fears. This is why we want to listen to it carefully. We see that in verses 22 to 25, the, this famous passage where the disciples are in this boat on the Sea of Galilee crossing the sea. Now, you may be like me. About three years ago, if you had seen me preach this text three years ago, I would have been hard on the disciples. They in the boat with Jesus, what they worried about. They ain't got no faith. Where's their faith, right? Maybe that's in your heart when you've heard this story. They're on the sea, and the Sea of Galilee is actually a large lake, but it's, it's well below sea level. And over the hills sometimes sweep in these winds that, that come and hit the lake, and they cause the lake to actually act like an ocean. That's why it's called the Sea of Galilee. I ever forget about three years ago, the first trip to Israel, we were on this very sea, taking a boat across the sea, and it's my turn to preach on the boat as we go across, and I, I choose this passage. And I stand up to preach, and the boat starts rocking. And pretty soon, all of a sudden, just like in this text, we are in a storm. This boat is rocking, man, and the lifeboats are falling off the top, man, and people are losing their lunch over the edge, and, and I'm hanging on trying to preach. If you want to give me this preach a shorter sermon, let's do it on the Sea of Galilee. <laughs> that sermon is about three minutes long, man, and I sat down not on the seat but in the, on the deck holding on to the pole, man, and we're riding across this sea, and this thing is being tossed, and sure enough, one of the old seamen is laying up in the helm, knocked out, <laughs> sleep. <laughs> 
And all the rest of us looking at like, what we going to do, right? What we going to do? Ain't nobody praying. Everybody's scared, right? And the thing I know, it seemed to get worse. We're halfway across the sea, and they decide, even if we make it across the sea, it's too rough for us to even dock. We may as well turn around. They tried to turn this boat around in this storm. Y'all. <laughs> Y'all. Every time I read this now, I have a whole new appreciation, man. These rough fishermen in verse 24 say, Master, Master, we are perishing. This is not their first storm on that sea. They are used to these waters, and yet they're terrified. And Jesus is asleep in the helm of the ship, and he wakes up as they wake him. Notice verse 24. He awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And here's what I think we're meant to grasp from this text. It's down in verse 25. And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Winds and water do not have ears. Winds and water do not have brains. Winds and water do not make decisions but they obey the word of Jesus. He is Lord over all creation. And he rules his creation by his word. He wakes up, he speaks to the winds and the waves, and they lay down and go to sleep. This is the power of God's word. And the result of the way he uses his word in the life of his disciples is to calm their fear. And so it is with us. We go to God's word. We trust God's word. We see the God of the word who rules over all creation. And when we grab hold of that well and we listen well to God's word, it has this calming effect in our lives. He calms the waves of the sea. He calms the waves of our hearts as well. And notice number seven. The word of God not only calms us, but the word of God sets us free. That's what we see in verses 26 to 33. We come to this second miracle story when Jesus heals a man who'd been possessed by demons for years. I mean, this man was in rough shape. Look there in verse 27. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there was, met him a man from the city who had demons, plural. For a long time, he wore no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. I mean, can you imagine it? You get out the boat, and this man, naked and dirty from the graveyard, comes running out there to you. I mean, look down in verse 29 in that parenthetical statement. For many a time it, the demon, had seized him. He, he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven, driven by the demons into the desert. I mean, they could not even bind this man and keep this man because of the way the demon was destroying this man's life. And he comes running to Jesus in, in verse 25, 26, 27 devastated by these demons. But notice the reaction of the demons when they encountered Jesus. Verse 28, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. The demons recognize who Jesus is. He's the son of the most high God. And the demons recognizes Jesus' real authority. So they notice, beg not to be cast out, not to be tormented. Listen, there is not the slightest hint of good versus evil in this text. If you think good versus evil are two sort of equal forces battling it out. No, Jesus steps off the boat and all the demons kneel. And all the demons cry out, don't, don't destroy us. Don't cast us into the abyss. You see, the demons know. The moment they see Jesus, that God has stepped on the scene, and they tremble. Verse 29 explains why. For he, Jesus, had already commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. The demon trembles at God's word. The Lord controls their fate by his word. The demons can do nothing but submit to whatever Jesus commands or allows. And notice, there are many demons in this man. He asks him, what's his name? He says, legion, because there are many. This is not one Jesus against one demon. This is one Lord against all the demons in this man. 
It's not even a fair fight in that sense. Jesus speaks a word and the demons fall. They beg to go into pigs rather than be sentenced to the abyss, which is the hell prepared for Satan and his angels. You see, the word of God controls not only the natural realm, but by his word, he also rules the spiritual realm. He rules the things seen and unseen, earthly and spiritual. Everything's from demons and devils to waves and winds are ruled by God and his word. By his word, he calms our fears. And you notice what happens with this man? By his word, he sets the captive free. Those who have been oppressed and harassed by demons are set free by this word. So why do we want to be careful to hear God's word? These seven things. Number one, because we have a responsibility to spread God's word. Number two, because everyone must hear God's word. Number three, because hearing is spiritual warfare. Number four, because the more we hear, the more we get. Number five, because our obedience to the word places us in a new family, a new loyalty. And number six, our hearing and believing the word, it calms our fears. And number seven, by hearing and believing the word, it sets us free. My friend, you may be coming this morning, you wonder why Christians love the Bible. This is why. It's God's word. And God rules his world through his word. And this is why Satan hates the word. And this is why our listening is so critical. So let me ask you a question. How do you respond to God's word? What attention do you give to it? What habits do you have around it? When you hear it, do you hear it? And that's really what we want to see in this second point. I want to give you this exhortation. Let us all be sure to believe God's word. Because when we go through this chapter, it's interesting to take note of the various responses that Jesus and his word receives from the people. And these responses teaches us, uh, teach us how we ought to then respond to the word. Let me break this down in, in four points for us. This exhortation to believe God's word. Let me break it out in four points. The first thing we need to know is that we cannot believe apart from God. We cannot believe apart from God. You see it there in verse 10? Look back at Luke 8, verse 10. When Jesus begins to explain the parable, he has this, this introductory statement. To you, meaning the disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Did you notice that when we went through it the first time? Jesus here is when he says, seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. He's quoting Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10. When God called the prophet Isaiah to be a prophet to Israel, he then said to Isaiah right from the start, now you're going to go preach to Israel, but I'm not going to allow them to believe. They, they got, they're going to hear, but they're not going to understand. They're going to see, but they're not going to perceive. And Jesus calls this to mind here as he explains this parable. There is a secret knowledge of the kingdom. Not like the Gnostics and the liberals and the heretics have taught through the history. But it's a secret. It's an open secret. And it is explained and believed and received by those who believe and receive the word. Right? Belief isn't something we create. It isn't something we muster up or something we conjure. Faith, the Bible teaches us, is a gift. We see that in places like Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. We're told it's by grace you have been saved, right? Through faith. And then Paul explains there, this is not of yourself. It is a gift of God. The faith that we have received that brings us into this saving relationship for God is a gift from God. It's not something that we manufacture. Or in Matthew chapter 11, you can write this down and look at this later if you like, or you can turn with me. Matthew 11, 25 to 27. Here's how Jesus says it there in a prayer. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. 
If you have come to know Christ, to have faith in him, it's because God has already worked on your heart to give you that faith. And if you've not yet come to know Christ and to know the Father through Christ, to believe the gospel, it's because you have not yet been given that gift. And you can't fake it till you make it. You can't conjure it up. You can't work it up. God is in control even over who believes. The first thing to know about this faith and the response then is we cannot believe apart from God. The second thing to know is that yet not believing is a sin. Yet not believing in God is a sin. That's implied in verse 25. You see, when the Lord gets up there in that storm from his uh, sleep and he rebukes the wind and the waves, what does he say to the disciples? Where is your faith? Uh, We can't create it, but Jesus seems to expect that we should have it. God expects us to trust him and to believe in him. We cannot believe apart from the gift of faith, yet it is sin not to believe. So Romans 14, 23 says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so even our unbelief makes us guilty before God. So you may say, well, what should we do if we can't believe on our own and we're guilty of not believing? Good question. You should call upon God to give you the gift of faith. Pray with the sinner, Lord, help my unbelief. Ask God to give you eyes to see and ears to hear. Ask him for an honest and a good heart that patiently bears fruit in faith. What we can do is call upon the name of the Lord with this promise in mind, Romans 10, verse 13, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We should appeal to God's mercy. Ask him to do, even with faith, what we cannot do for ourselves. And that really is the message of the gospel, that through Jesus Christ, God does everything that we cannot do for ourselves. He he provides a righteousness for us through Jesus' perfect obedience, not through ours. We are sinners. And he he provides a payment for our sin through Jesus' death on the cross. And, And he provides for us eternal life in raising Jesus from the dead three days later. Everything we need from righteousness to punishment to resurrection and new life, God provides for us in Jesus Christ. Faith is no exception. It is by his grace that we come to believe. So what do we do? Lord, give me this gift. Show me your mercy. Which brings us to the third thing about our response. It's a mistake to reject God's word. Even if you come this morning and you're not yet a Christian and you're saying, well, I don't have faith. Oh, please do not turn that into an excuse to then walk away from what you're hearing. You are now being made by God accountable to what you're hearing. Rejecting what you hear is a serious mistake. Notice here, verses 34 to 37. Do you remember what happened in verses 34 to 39? How the people come out when the man, the the demon-possessed man has been healed, and all the people come out from the town? Look there with me in verse 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. See what's happening in this text. They see a miracle. They see the man clothed and sane after he'd been running around naked and crazed for years. They hear how it had been done, verse 36. But they do not receive Christ or his word. Instead, notice, they ask him to depart. Many people are like these garrisons. They see a room like this, full of former sinners and former reprobates. And they see how Christ has cleaned us up and clothed us in our right minds and has changed our lives. Every Christian in here can give you testimony, if they're honest, of sin, significant sin in their history and what God has saved them from. 
And people in this room will hear the explanation that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And would hear the testimony that, that God found me steeped in sin and he rescued me from the judgment that's coming and he's changed my heart and changed my mind and changed my life. And they will hear people tell them that this can be yours through Jesus Christ. And you know what many people do? They effectively ask Jesus to depart from them. They reject the gospel. They reject God's word. And in rejecting Jesus Christ, they bring judgment upon themselves. The lesson this crowd teaches us is do not refuse Jesus. Do not let demons confess more about Christ than you do. They know he's the son of God and they bow before him though they hate him. Oh, we don't want to be demonic in our response. We want to be humble. We want to look at this crate, this man who was formerly out of his mind. Look there in verses 38 and 39. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Jesus made this man an evangelist and a preacher. The demons begged, but they wanted to get away from Jesus. This man begs because he wants to be with Jesus. And Jesus says, no, you don't need to roll with me. I tell you what, go back to your home. Go back to your city. Tell people what God has done. Now this man who was lost in tombs, afflicted by demons, has been given a new purpose and a new priority to proclaim what God has done through Christ his son. Beloved, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, I, my plea to you is don't respond like the demons. Respond like this man. And like those of us who know our past, confess your sin. Beg to go with Christ. Beg that he would be to you a, a Savior and a Lord and your God. And beg that all that he has done to satisfy God's righteous demands and all that he has done to turn away God's wrath and judgment would be your benefit. Don't let the enemy steal the word from you. Don't be distracted. Believe, because number four and finally, your faith will make you well. Your faith will make you well. This is what we see both in the raising of Jarius' daughter, the 12-year-old girl from death to life, and this is what we see with the woman with the issue of blood. This woman has been bleeding for, the text says, I think 12 years. And she comes to Jesus and she can't get close to him. The crowd is in the way again. But you know what? She has spent all that she had on physicians and no one could heal her. She had her, her private medical savings account. She spent it. She got Obamacare. That didn't help. And now she's saying there's only one way. It's Jesus. And she presses through the crowd and she reasons this way. If I could but touch the hem of his garment. That was an act of faith, beloved. And sure enough, she gets a, a touch of that hem, and Jesus senses that power has gone out from him. And he turns and says, who touched me? And the disciples, being, being men, like men looking in a refrigerator, right? You never see the food in the refrigerator. Man, we don't know. All these people out here. And Jesus said, nobody, somebody touches me, touch me. And the woman tells her story. And notice what he says in those tender words. Daughter, your faith has made you whole. Go in peace. This is why you want to believe. It will make you whole. It will make you well. You will be reconciled to God, and God, in the promise of his kingdom, will restore everything that's broken. This healing of this woman who was healed at that moment is simply a commercial of the final healing that comes in the consummation of God's kingdom. And we see the same thing with Jairus' daughter. He continues to go to Jairus' house. Jairus is, a, is a, a ruler of the synagogue, the text tells us. He's a religious man, but it's not clear that he actually believes in Jesus at this point. He's got a 12-year-old girl lying at home dying. And I can tell you as a father of daughters, you'd do just about anything to save your daughter. And he forgets his standing as a ruler of the synagogue. He forgets his Jewish station and the opposition of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he goes to Jesus and he pleads with Jesus. My daughter is at home dying and Jesus goes with him. 
He gets there, and by the time he gets to his house, the crowd comes out and says, don't bother the rabbi any longer. Don't bother the teacher. She's already dead. And the crowd is more committed to the little girl's death than the father is to her life. And Jesus takes James and John and Peter and he takes the parents and he goes into the house and he shuts everybody else out who's laughing at him because he says she's asleep, not dead. And he goes into the room, he takes her by the hand and he says, child, rise. That little girl who had been dead sits straight up, living, breathing. It's given back to his parents, her parents. And he said, feed her, give her something to eat. And he says, don't tell anybody. And I don't know how that's going to work. Because <laughs> everybody's already started the funeral, right? And this little girl's alive. A picture of the resurrection and eternal life in that final kingdom, a, a taste of it. And you know what he said to Jairus when they were on the way? Around verse 50 or so, somewhere in there, 49. He says, don't fear, only believe. To the woman bleeding, he says, your faith has made you well. To the father facing grief, he says, don't fear, only believe. Your faith will make you well. And to us, he says, don't fear, believe, trust him. Rest your life and your hopes in his loving hands. Believe that he is Lord, that he was crucified for us and raised from the grave, and that he gives forgiveness and eternal life, a perfect righteousness, and a new family to all who believe. Believe. Believe the word of God. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. Salvation comes through our ears. Believe. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we praise you for what we have heard from your word. We thank you for what we have learned about your word. That we are to listen to it carefully. That we are to listen to it as if we are in a war for it. For our enemy, Satan, looks to snatch the seed from us. And we thank you for your word which brings to us newness of life. A new family. Makes us well by faith. And we pray that you would strengthen us in faith. Lord, we praise you that however feeble is our faith, it is saving. And we praise you that you will strengthen our faith if we will heed your word. And we thank you, Lord, that you will give new life to everyone who, who trusts. And so we pray for those who have who not yet believed. We pray that you would give them faith. We thank you for bringing them under the sound of your gospel this morning. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would give them a new heart. They can't believe apart from you. So help them to call out to you. And please answer their calling. We praise you for your word, which we have freely in our own language. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would help us to treasure it, to hide it in our hearts, to never depart from it, that we might bear fruit with patience. Do this, O oh Lord, we pray for your glory. In Jesus' name.